0: Hello and welcome to Coffee House Questions with Ryan Polly. This is part two of the questions class from Rock Harbor Fullerton looking at creation versus evolution. I hope you enjoy. This mystery to my soul has drawn me to my And so what about similarities in structure? Here Richard Dawkins, an atheist evolutionary biologist, says this. The reason we know for certain we are all related, including bacteria, is the universality of the genetic code and other biomechanical fundamentals. And so his biggest argument in favor of evolution is what? Our genes are very similar. Now, have any of you heard about the similarity between apes and humans that are genes, right? A lot of people say it's like 98, 99% similar between us and apes, so our genetic code is very similar, and to Richard Dawkins, that's how we know for a fact that we're all related. Well what about our similarity? Again, this is one of those points that is very misleading. The similarity is in the 2% of our genome that codes for proteins, not in the 98% that does not code. Let's so think about this for a second. Within our DNA, if you take 100% of our DNA, 2% of our DNA is coding for proteins. 98% does not code, has a different function. The 98% or 99% similarity that we have with apes, that's 99% similar within the 2%. And so when you look at that, it's like, well, yeah, 2% of our DNA is very similar, but not the 98% that does not code. The 98% non-coding region, uh, the evolutionists, Darwinists have thought for a long, long time that it's junk DNA. It's leftover junk, wasted DNA, and it's junk because there's been so many mutations over time that our DNA has become useless and just junk, and now it has no function. However, creationist scientists thought, man, I really think that this DNA does have function. And they looked into it, and they're discovering that it does. In fact, the 98% so-called junk DNA is telling are informing the, the 2% of what to do. And so it's kind of like a switchboard informing the 2% of how to code for these proteins. And so we're finding out that, hey, our genome really does do a whole lot. And the last question to kind of ask is, DNA similarity could be evidence of a common designer rather than a common ancestor. Why is it that we immediately would jump to a common ancestor rather than a common designer? Because I think if we look at examples within our culture, structures with similar function often have a similar blueprint. If you have two, a house with a school, well, there's similar function. It's a building holding people up. You have a similar blueprint. There's no reason to make drastic changes, right? There's no reason to recreate the wheel. This blueprint works really, really well. Why change it? And so we have examples here. And this is shown a lot in textbooks. Well, a dog leg, a bat wing, a seal wing, also a whale flipper and a human hand have all the same bones, have very similar joints and everything like that. The only difference is the length of each kind of bone. But they're very, very similar. Therefore, what? We came from them. We have a common ancestor that we all evolved. And as we needed our arms more, we just evolved. The same thing. Um, Heckel's embryo drawings. Look, we look very similar when we're in an embryo. Have any of you ever seen Heckel's embryo drawings in textbooks before? I don't know if I'm going to get to that next, um, but one thing that's fascinating with them is that that, his embryo drawings that are still published in textbooks, it came out that he faked the drawings. Um, Dr. uh, uh, William Dembski said that um, even though Heckel's drawings still appear in some textbooks today, it's been known for over a century that they were faked. And even uh, uh, agnostic, um, we'll see him here in a little bit, Stephen Jay Gould, who is an uh, agnostic evolutionary biologist from Harvard University, he said that um, it's no secret to experts that these drawings were faked um, and that textbook writers should be embarrassed um, and ashamed of themselves that they've continued to reproduce this information. And so, again, just like with Stanley Miller's experiment, these are some of those things, those embryo drawings that say, well, we look so similar. Look, we must have all evolved from a similar ancestor. Well, one, the drawings are just faked, but we're still using them to teach people that evolution is true. But here's the question. Even if we're very, very similar, does that prove that there's a common ancestor? Why not a common creator? One example of something that we have today Man, those three phones are so similar. Is there a common ancestor of those phones? Or did we realize, well, we have a similar, what is it right here? A similar, structures with similar function often have a similar blueprint. So we have three phones that have very similar function. They all need to do the same thing, make calls, use apps, text. So why change it that much? Now you get a few changes. You know, Samsung got the stylus you could write on the screen. You know, Windows over here got rid of their home button right on the, you know, there's no home button. So there's been small changes, but why make drastic changes when they have the same function? We wouldn't say, oh, they evolved. No, intelligent beings created the phones, but didn't need to make them that different to still keep the same function. And there's lots of examples that we can look at. The similarity of structure proved that the pot evolved from the teaspoon. Well they're so similar, look you can easily draw a line of how to small change, small change, small change, small change and now you have a pot. Or is it that we had an intelligent person that decided hey, um, this can be useful for cooking small stuff, but we need this for bigger stuff and so we made different kinds of pots. With the same general idea with handles, why? So you don't burn your hands, there's a function for it. And so we kept making it in the same way. And um, Tim Barrow is a Darwinist, in one of his publications, he produced uh, the idea, and he drew this out in his book, showing, look, here's an example of descent with modification. You take a car, a 1953 Corvette. Now, it is very different from the 1978. However, if you go year to year to year to year to year, you see small change, small change, small change, small change, and now there's big change. And he used that as an example to say, hey, small changes, every, you know, short time, small changes, over a long period of time will progress big changes. What's the problem though? This is known as Barra's blunder because it's an illustration of intelligent design. Who's making changes to these cars? Intelligent designers. Changing them to better for function or different purposes. Here's the real experiment. What would happen if you took the 1953 Corvette and and drove it out into a field and left it there until 1978? Would it look like this in 1978? No. What what would happen to the 53 Corvette? Rusted, Rusted, fallen apart, right? When you allow natural forces to take an effect on something, it destroys it. It does not make it better. And that's, again, where we get into what we talked about the first week, the second law of thermodynamics, and we're running out of usable energy, and this, this idea that we're constantly getting further and further away from this perfection that we started with. We're constantly running out of energy, and things get worse, not better. Now, what they'll say is, hey, it's easy to look at, you know, a a monkey and a human or something like that and say, wow, they're so similar. But how about the dissimilarity? How does a Darwinist explain the differences between bees, octopus, Venus flytrip, the peacock, the human? If we all have a common ancestor, how do you explain these things that are so extremely drastically different? It's easy to take two things that are similar. Say, so look how similar must be a common ancestor. But if you think about it, if everything comes down to the initial bacteria, the first life, then our common, we're a common ancestor with bananas as well as monkeys. Our bananas are our cousin. In fact, even bacteria are our cousins, our distant cousins. How do you explain that? See, again, it's easy when you take something that looks similar, but man, when you look at everything in comparison, Us compared to a banana, really? We both have the same common ancestor? Okay, it's getting a little bit ridiculous. Now here's um, how this is normally argued for. Now if you remember uh, uh, Richard Dawkins, what was his main reason that evolution is true? Genetics are very similar. So he says our DNA and our bone structure, homology, are very similar. Now what does that show us? It shows us that we have a common ancestor. Well, why not a common designer? Why doesn't it show us that we have a common designer? Well, because evolution is true. How do you know evolution is true? Because of DNA and homology. Another way this works is DNA and homology show us there's a common ancestor. Why not a common designer? Because the common designer doesn't exist, God doesn't exist. How do you know God doesn't exist? Well, because everything is explained through evolution. How do you know evolution is true? And same thing, what is this called? Circular Circular reasoning. And so here, it's it's circular reasoning. And we'll see further from Dawkins, he's trying to, he's already jumped to his conclusion of what he wants to prove. And so he's just arguing in a circle. And it's not making it anywhere.
1: Do the experiments and you analyze how much information is required to get say a new protein fold is just far beyond what you can get by random mutation in natural selection.
2: How far beyond? Axe published his findings in the Journal of the Molecular Biology. He determined that among all the possible amino acid combinations the probability of generating just one short protein by mutation is roughly 1 in 10 to the 74th power. Or one chance in a hundred trillion. Trillion, 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 trillion.
1: <laughs> To put that in context, there's only 10 to the 65 atoms in the entire galaxy. So to build a new functional protein by selection and mutation within the time allowed for the Cambrian explosion, what you're essentially having to do is equivalent to a blindfolded man looking throughout the entire galaxy for one marked atom. So what we're talking about is searching for a tiny, tiny needle in, a, in an enormous haystack and, and having a very limited time to search. So, on the question of something like the Cambrian Explosion, There does not appear to be any way that unguided, random mutations can accomplish what needs to be accomplished to explain new functional proteins. And certainly by extension, wherever in the history of life you would need to have multiple new protein folds, the probabilities multiply. So there's no reason to think that this is plausible.
0: So what were the chances of getting one new functional protein? Yeah, 10 and 74th power. And he said there's only 10 and 64th atoms in the entire universe, in our galaxy. So it's like marking one atom and saying, go find it. That's the probability. And then he said, well, in order to get lots of new proteins, now you multiply the probability. And we'll look here at that in a second. One thing I forgot to mention at the beginning, kind of going forward now, um, when we're looking at this, um, I'm going to assume uh, the old Earth perspective Um, I think that within old earth creationism and young earth creationism, either the earth is 6,000 years old or it's 14.3 billion years old, Um, you know, Christians can go back and forth on that, and there's different reasons, and if you want to talk about that later, we can. Um, But I think a lot of times when we're discussing evolution with an evolutionist, I want to accept all of their conclusions when it comes to the age of the earth and all of their things, and then show them that their theory fails even with their own scientific findings. You know, I think if we say, well, your evolution is false because the earth is only 6,000 years old, well, then they just reject that and they throw that out because they think the Bible is ridiculous. And so kind of here moving forward, just for the sake of argument, we're going to take an old earth perspective just to show that even using their own findings of the age of the earth and that kind of stuff, we can still show that it's more probable. And then at a later time, if you want, we can discuss, well, what about the age of the earth? Which one is it? Um, But just for now, for the sake of argument, we're going to take that old earth approach just to look at it from their perspective. And so, here's the chances of getting a new functional protein. And here's, we're going to go back to uh, Dawkins, and he says, the reason we know for certain that we're all related, including bacteria, is the universality of the genetic code and other biomechanical fundamentals. And he continues, my philosophical commitment to materialism and reductionism is true, but I would prefer to characterize it as a philosophical commitment to the real explanation as opposed to a complete lack of an explanation is what you expose. This is the key point, his commitment to materialism. That is the belief that there is no God. There is no immaterial world around us, that the material world is the only thing that exists. And so what he's doing is he's starting with his commitment to what? There is no God. The material world is all that exists, and that is true. Now let's draw our conclusions from there. And so he's ruling out intelligence before he even looks at the evidence. And he's begging the question. He's assuming what he's trying to prove. He is is assuming evolution is true because materialism is true rather than trying to figure out, is materialism true? Is evolution true based on the evidence? And the way I explain this to my students is, could you imagine if you're a police officer and you get called to a bank because the the money in the vault's missing, but you believe, before you walk into the bank, that there are no such thing as thieves or robbers? And so you walk into the bank, and sure enough, the money's gone. Now, what are you going to conclude? Well, all the money disappeared, or maybe there's a computer glitch. There's a glitch in the computer system. The money was never there. They were just mistaken. Right? But no one could have ever stolen the money because thieves don't exist. Does that make sense? So when you rule out the possibility of a thief taking the money, well, now you might get your next best explanation, like there's a glitch in the computer system. But you're ruling out one of the possible options before you even look at the evidence. But what does a good police officer, a good detective do? You walk in... You take all the evidence into account, and if it shows you that there was just a computer glitch, okay, well, that's where their money went. It's just a glitch in your system. But if there's fingerprints and there's evidence of a robber, okay, now we show that there's an intelligent being that took the money. Does that make sense? What's happening here, though, is that he's ruling out intelligence before he even looks at the evidence. Okay, there was no intelligent being involved. There is no God. Now what best explains where life came from? It must be evolution rather than looking at the evidence and saying, where does the evidence lead us to? Is it a natural explanation It came through evolution or was there intelligence behind it? And uh, Einstein says, the man of science is a poor philosopher. Says, we need to be good in philosophy as well as science. And we looked at this in the first week, a lot of people say, hey, science is the only way to knowledge. If you're ever here, remember, well, what's a good question? Is that a scientific truth? What scientific experiment did you do that science is the only way to know truth? That's a philosophical statement. And so it's important to kind of understand philosophy as well as science. And then follow the evidence where it leads. So what about the fossils? Well, don't the fossils show us that evolution is true? Here's uh, Stephen Jay Gould. He was an evolutionary biologist from Harvard University, an agnostic, non-Christian. And here he says, modern multicellular animals make their first uncontested appearance in the fossil record some 570 million years ago. And with a bang, not a protracted crescendo, this Cambrian explosion marks the advent, at least into direct evidence, of virtually all major groups of modern animals and all within the minuscule span, geologically speaking, of a few million years. Now, have you heard of the Cambrian explosion before? Yeah, a couple. This, I think, is the strongest piece of evidence against evolution. Because we'll see here in a little bit, Darwin's picture of evolution is what? You start with one species, and you get gradual change. So you get two species, and then two to four, and then four to eight, and then eight to 16. You get small changes, and it's a gradual change. However, what we've now discovered in science is that about 570 million years ago, that there was this massive explosion of animals where almost all different body types and species groups of animals came into, into existence in a very, very short period of time, geologically speaking. Now, to me, what does that sound like coming from a Christian worldview? God creates animals they come into existence in a short period of time, right? But this, it's one of those things that, okay, how can evolution be true? How can this gradual modification be true with this massive spike in animals. And we'll look at that here in a second. And so what he says is that, hey, there's two big issues with the fossils that are inconsistent with gradualism. First of all, this idea that, s- that the species, uh, when we, they appear in the fossil record, and when they leave the fossil record, they're generally identical. There's very little change in species from when they first show up to when they leave the fossil record. And the other issue is this sudden appearance. The species do not arise gradually uh, by steady transformation of its ancestors but it appears all at once fully formed. How do you explain that? How do you explain these? And so here an agnostic evolutionary biologist says, hey here's two big issues with this idea of gradual evolution, gradual change.
2: Imagine a graph, if you will, of the appearance over time of phyla. In Darwin's picture, you'd have one, then two, then four, perhaps, then eight, a gradually increasing curve
1: of the number of phyla growing over time. What you actually have in the fossil record is a sudden spike in the number of phyla that appear during the Cambrian, and then a few that trickle in uh, across the rest of geologic time this kind of discontinuity is radically at odds with the darwinian picture of the history of life the pattern we see is the major body plants present at the beginning and that
2: the organisms that we know today fall into one or another of those major body plants they don't gradually increase over time
0: And so here in National Geographic, it just kind of reconfirms what they're saying. And so in 2004, National Geographic put out an article that said, illuminating but spotty, the fossil record is like a film of evolution from which 999 of every 1,000 frames has been lost on the cutting room floor. All right? what are we normally led to believe when it comes to fossils? That we have all the changes. We have all the transitional fossils. We have the complete picture, and it shows this tree. But in reality, we don't have most of the fossils we we don't have it it's very spotty and we don't have all these in-between features and so what would the fossil record look like if intelligent design is true what would it look like if God is the one that created the fossils well here Stephen Jay Gould says in the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology the evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and the nodes of their branches. The rest is an inference, however reasonable, not the evidence of fossils. Now again, how many of you in class have seen the evolutionary tree? Everything is connected on the tree. And we'll see here in the video here in a second and and examples of it. Here he says, no, we only have evidence where? At the very tips. All the rest of the tree is just an inference. It sounds good but it's not reasonable and it's not based on the fossil evidence. Again, another thing that looks very, it's very misleading uh, within our textbooks. And so here's what they show. Here's the tree. We started down here at the bacteria. And as you go up, you get all these different animals and all these different creatures come. But what we really have is this. Here's the true picture. We We have fossil evidence of each animal, but there is no connection. We have nothing in between each one of these fossils. There aren't missing link. There's a missing chain. So watch this really quick.
1: This body plan, the arthropod phyla, has a segmented torso, jointed legs, and an exoskeleton, all of which arose suddenly at the beginning of the Cambrian explosion. And today we still see the continuity of this original plan, this foundational idea in over a million species of animals. This top-down pattern looks nothing like the predictions of Darwin's
2: theory. Darwin's theory is that there's a tree of life diverging into many other organisms and big differences appearing at the top. What we really see is from here up. This does not exist in the fossil record. If I were using a botanical illustration, it would be a lawn with separate blades of grass sprouting independently of each other. And those would be the phylum. Now within each phylum, there is subsequent diversification. But even there, I don't see the branches connecting that would make them a tree of life. Darwin was caught in the grip of a deep dilemma. The fossil record showed him one thing. His theory told him something else. He comes to an impasse at this point, and he says, if this pattern holds, it is a genuine argument against my view. And I think 150 years later, uh, we've added a great deal more detail to the picture, but I think the basic problem is still
0: unsolved. So again, there's one more example um, of what we have in the fossil record. Another one of those just misleading representations that keep showing up. But it's all based on this idea that when we start with our worldview that says God does not exist, what is the best explanation for how we all got here and how we're all different? Well, evolution, I think, is the, sec- is the next best explanation. When you rule out the best one, which one makes the most sense? And we'll look at that here in a second. Um, but it, here's, I think, a good um, <laughs> kind of way of saying it is uh, to take a line of fossils and claim that they represent a a lineage is not a scientific hypothesis that can be tested, but is an assertion that carries the same validity as a bedtime story. Amusing, perhaps even instructive, but not scientific. Why? Because 99% of biology of any organism resides in the soft anatomy, which is inaccessible in a fossil. And so there's just a lot of jumps made, but it's one of those things of, hey, if you want this to be true, if you're looking for answers to prove Darwinian evolution true, well then these fossils that are very similar can, make, can build a strong case. But, when you start, but it's when you start with that idea that it already starts out as true. And so what's needed is a complete, fully articulated evolutionary path, not merely a possible oasis along the way. To claim otherwise is like saying that we can travel by foot from Los Angeles to Tokyo because we've discovered the Hawaiian Islands. Hey, we have this one connection. We can now make the whole jump. Really? Where are all the rest of the connections? And they're just not there. And so that's kind of a, a brief look at uh, Darwinian evolution, looking at the major things. What are the major things talked about? Darwin's finches, the fossil record, the homology, the similar bone structure, as well as a similar um, DNA. And just that a lot of it is just misleading, or kind of taken of, yeah, that makes sense if you're already excluding out the intelligent designer. But can all that be explained just as easily with an intelligent designer? Yeah. If God was creating animals and, hey, I want two animals to both be able to walk on two feet or I have two animals and I need a similar function, why change the blueprint that much? Of course, there's no reason to make drastic changes when it, the, what he's making has a similar function in the same way we don't make drastic changes uh, in building plans or you know building codes when it has a similar function. So um, are there any quick questions before uh, on Darwinian evolution before we kind of get to intelligent design very quickly? I'm not going to spend a whole lot longer because I want more question time today, but I just kind of want to look um, after this at just what I think that better explains the information that we've kind of looked at. Question?
2: Could you do those numbers again, the one in 10 to the 74 and one in 10 to the 64, just what the details were on that? Yeah, Yeah,
0: those details is what they're saying is the odds of getting a functional protein that can code for life uh, through random change over time is one in 10 to the 74th probability. Those are the odds. Now then to put that into perspective, uh, there's one in 10 to the 64th atoms in our entire galaxy. And so the odds of getting a functional protein are similar to marking a single atom in our galaxy and then saying go find that atom and that's the likelihood that we would be able to get a functional protein just through random successive changes well i want to thank you so much for listening to the second part of the coffeehouse questions podcast from rock harbor fullerton on uh, creation and evolution the final part will be coming up next you can uh, find it at coffeehouse questions but i want to ask you if you've been listening to this podcast, it would mean so much for me to for you to go to iTunes to rate this podcast, uh, to show that you like it, and uh, so that more people will be able to see the information that is given through it. So I would be very appreciative if you would go do that for me. And um I just hope that you are enjoying this uh as much as I enjoy recording these for you guys. So thank you so much for listening. This has been Ryan Polly with Coffee House Questions. Have a great rest of your week, and God bless.